Hello listeners, how are you doing? Welcome to Max Talks AI. Today on the show I have Luke Demel, the author of The Formula and Thinking Machines. Luke is a freelance journalist, author, public speaker based in the UK. He primarily writes on the subject of technology, particularly emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, virtual reality and 3D printing. Luke's books have been reviewed in places like the New York Times, Kirkus Review of Books, Forbes and the Los Angeles Review of Books as well as cited in Yuval Noah Harari's recent book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Luke's latest book, Thinking Machines, The Quest for Artificial Intelligence, and What It's Taken Us Next, which I, by the way, liked very much, was also reviewed by no other than Ray Kurzweil on the New York Times, where he called Luke a gifted storyteller who interweaves the personal stories with the broad history of artificial intelligence. Luke and I connected on Twitter, and this led to me coming down to Bristol to interview him face-to-face, now, please enjoy this episode with Luke Demel, where we talk about the definition of artificial intelligence, the impact AI can have on jobs, universal basic income, and typewriters. Hello there, and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today, a very special guest joined me, or rather, I joined him. He kindly invited me to his house when I suggested that it would be amazing to have Luke on my podcast. I am super thrilled to have you here in your house. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for traveling all this way. That's all right. In a lot of the content that you have online, you're talking a lot about films. Yeah. So to me, it was kind of surprising that you went into book writing now, especially in the last few years, much more so than in film production. Sure. So just wondering about what were your motivations for that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I've, I've got a slightly sort of circuitous route, I suppose, into techno- uh, technology journalism. I started out as a documentary uh, filmmaker. I was making documentaries about really kind of quirky aspects of popular culture. Um, and I think nowadays, if you're interested in popular culture, you sort of have to be interested in technology just because it dictates so much of um I suppose, kind of the, the 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 world around us. I mean, so many. You know, I I grew up as a science fiction fan, and so many of the technologies that we see, for example, in science fiction films, are now part of our kind of everyday uh, reality. So really, that was kind of. I suppose I I originally started. Um, I wrote an article where I interviewed a lot of uh, computer scientists who had worked in Edinburgh um, mm-hmm. at the. They had a pioneering artificial intelligence lab back in the the early nineteen seventies. And I started interviewing them and I just sort of found it it, this really kind of fascinating world. And as I say, I think that if you're interested in sort of popular culture, really Silicon Valley and technology now is kind of what's driving a lot of that. So that sort of led me to technology uh, journalism. And I was interested in the story behind a lot of these technologies as well. So I suppose that's my kind of my journalistic background. But no, I'm absolutely very, uh, I'm a big uh, movie fan. I write for a few sort of movie magazines as well but predominantly the writing that I'm doing is now uh, sort of tech uh, journalism and in terms of books I mean I always think it's kind of funny because almost books are kind of the the, the entirely wrong medium to write about technology in some ways because I mean it's great for sort of documenting and chronicling history but in terms of writing about what is you know just happening now uh, the moment a book is kind of printed, it's already out of date. It's uh, I don't know. So I I, I think that's kind of uh, I don't know an an interesting irony in all of this. What about then just thinking about interviews, right? As a, as a kid, what were you like? Were you you know just pretending that you're interviewing? Were always with a camera, 
or were you writing a lot? Were you sketching? That's a, a good question. I've not really been. Uh, I've not really thought too much about that. I suppose that trying to sort of tell people stories and to kind of place that into a larger kind of narrative is something that has always kind of interested mm-hmm. um, me. I've always in, I've always been quite interested in people. And particularly when it is something, as I say, sort of with technology, telling the stories of the people behind a lot of these technologies. A lot of these are things that we sort of take for granted as just being kind of part of our everyday lives. So the fact that there's maybe kind of one person or two people or a small team of people who develop the interface elements that are now used by kind of millions of people around the world, I think is kind of is is very interesting um to me but yeah it's all I've I've always enjoyed writing I mean I I remember being you know sort of six and going to visit my grandparents and them having a typewriter and me spending kind of hours writing stories on it so certainly the kind of the writing side has always been something I've been interested in mm-hmm Mm-hmm. A typewriter, you said. Do you own one now? I I I do own one now. I actually. This is kind of what I expected, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I I I often think that if I ever had some ridiculous amount of money, if ever one of my books decided that it was going to fly to the top of the bestsellers chart or something, I would love to start like a sort of a a, a typewriter collection. I'd yeah. love to get the um. Uh, Ian Fleming, the James Bond author, I think he wrote all of his books. He had a gold typewriter, yeah. uh, which he he had imported from New York, and I've always thought that would be kind of the holy grail of um of sort of tech gadgetry to uh, to own. Yeah. For me, that would be better than kind of you know owning the original kind of you know nineteen eighty four Macintosh or any of those kind of classic computers. Yeah. There's something about typewriters which I th- I think it's interesting because I think. In some ways, technology has such a, a big impact on. I mean, philosophers have always talked about the way that technology kind of structures reality to an extent. But I often find now when I'm writing um, books, I'll write them really sort of non sequentially and then sort of piece everything together afterwards. Whereas with a typewriter, you have to be very kind of methodical in the way that you're composing sentences because you can't go back and suddenly think, oh, I'll swap this sentence. I mean, you can go back and retype the whole document, but you know, it imposes a very kind of rigid way of thinking on you, um, which you don't have with computers where you can just, you know, sort of copy and paste a, a sort of a paragraph and sort yeah. of shift things around. So I think in some ways it's it's quite good sort of training to uh, to, to, to to maybe sort of have that, uh, I don't know, it, 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 as I say, it's a, a little bit like having a, a rhyme skit if you're a poet and you've got like a certain sort of rhyme pattern that you need to follow. It sort of imposes these kind of rules on you that you then need yeah. to kind of... Yeah. you know, take take on board. I don't know if you saw the film um, The Darkest Hour, where it, it's, it's about Churchill. I haven't seen it yet. And there, really it's, it's amazing, super, super interesting. And there he has, because um, I think a lot of the typewriting that was happening back then was a person dictating, yep. if it was politician or any address, you know, if you think about uh, giving a speech and stuff like that, presentation, anything. Yes. There would be a person dictating and then a professional copywriter yeah, typewriter yeah, yeah. there and then the way he dictates and then he's like now nah, scratch that and then she has to throw away the whole thing oh, that right. she's just written <laughs> and then you know it's rewriting and rewriting interesting yeah very but i think i think i read somewhere that typewriters are coming back in terms of their product life cycle interesting. a bit like um you know the old records and stuff like that sure. they really plummeted and there was no money in it yeah but yeah. some companies stayed and then now it's kind of coming back up as a retro thing oh okay so that it's very interesting yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, actually, um, for, for for this Christmas, and I haven't thought about typewriters for ages, but my, my parents bought me, they found some old um, 
book about typewriters in a charity shop yeah. and I was just reading their sort of um, it's kind of a history of the typewriter and then the last chapter I think this book was published in about 19 early 1970s so it was before uh -huh. the personal computer the personal computer kind of kicks off in like 1975 yeah. Yeah. and um, so it was just before that and they had one final chapter where they were talking about you know what's the future of the typewriter and they were sort of making these amazing sorry there's a dog barking in the background um, they were making all these kind of forecasts about where um, you know what I suppose kind of how these technologies are going to kind of adapt over time and they were sort of saying in the long term you can imagine a typewriter where you're typing onto a screen and I don't know it's just so interesting yeah. you know and, and and maybe in 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 3,000 years we'll have one that we can kind of dictate to ourselves and it'll type what you say and you then think you know wow I've got that on my mobile phone now which is this device smaller than a deck of cards which yeah. fits in your pocket it's kind of amazing how rapidly these things move on. What do you think then, since you've touched, and we're going to dig into your books and stuff yeah, like that, but before that, um, when you mentioned dictation, I just I just read an article that talks about voice recognition, yeah. and I mean, definitely there is a huge progress in that just recent few years. Yeah. Do you, when you write your books or anything really, do you use voice recognition as a dictation as a tool? or Not really. I, I, I infuriate my wife by dictating emails if I'm outside, but um, beyond that, which is always, I don't know, it always sounds like this really pretentious thing if you're sitting on a train sort of saying, you know, dear Max, comma, next yeah. paragraph, yeah. how are you today, question mark. Um, but no, for, for, for the most part, it's, um, I think that, I mean, it, it's interesting. Again, we, we sort of go back to the typewriter and the way that it sort of enforces certain limitations on the way that you have to kind of think about what you're writing. I think that typing is also a little bit like that. I think you can speak much faster than you can think sometimes, which I think is often why people get into trouble for things that they say, yeah. because they'll, you know, blurt something out which maybe with a bit more sort of nuancing would have been fine to say, but they kind of, you know, say it too kind of quickly. So... I think the fact that when you're typing, it sort of forces you to, there, 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 there's a certain sort of, um, I don't know, a, a, a process to it or a sort of formality to it. It sort of it dictates the speed at which you can think to an extent. Mm -hmm. So I think that if it was just sort of dictating things, then I don't know that um, I would, I don't know, it would just sound, yeah. so, so it would sound like rambling, I think. So uh, no, I, I, I don't use it myself. But it's it's an incredible tool, and I mean, again, I'm a lot of the time I'll write about um, sort of accessibility technologies, um, you know, for people who 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 with with sort of varying disabilities and things. And I mean, things like dictation have obviously been amazingly transformative. In um, I was writing recently about a a, a new um, image recognition gadget which is able to turn sign language um, into written text yeah. um, which is again you know just the the ability to kind of you know move between these different sort of I suppose communicative mediums is is, is quite amazing now mm -hmm. okay then picking up on that in terms of you know like to me there are three main ways to deliver whatever the message you want to deliver there is video right sure. that's really really hot now and I mean you know historically there were films they were structured like this now there is all kinds of different formats there is super long films yeah. There is sh super short videos and there is there are things in between and stuff like that. So there is video. Yeah. There is audio, which yeah. is, you know, what I'm doing, what we're doing now. Sure. And interestingly, it's, it, I mean, video, it's funny because nowadays, you know, people increasingly don't watch films because they watch TV shows. And then online, you know, sort of the most popular videos are things which are kind of, you know, three minute 
videos on YouTube or sort of short form videos on YouTube. But with audio, it's kind of gone the other way, hasn't it? I mean, often I'll go and speak on, you know, speak on a topic on the radio and they'll try and cover, you know, artificial intelligence in three minutes. And yeah. then I love the fact that the podcast has almost done the sort of the, the, the inverse of video in the sense that now you'll happily sit down and listen to, you know, often like a two-hour podcast with people yeah. sort of really delving into something in detail. So I always oh, think that's kind of interesting. Four hours of all, like, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you think it's connected in any way with the attention spams there is um, there is a bunch of evidence for and against it really because i mean the films are getting longer yeah. right as you said people are happy to listen to podcasts yeah. also because they can do other things at the same time yes but yet people are talking about short attention spams and how we can't really stay focused for long yeah i mean i think with film it's slightly different because i think yes films are getting um longer I think there are a few reasons for that, though. I think that one of them is probably the fact that a lot of the time people will now watch things at home, whereas, you know, previously, I mean, you, we've only had home video for, what, 30 years or something. Mm -hmm. um, so previously it had to be a whole kind of cinema experience. So if you wanted to make it longer, you had to, um, you know, I mean, often if you see like a Cecil B. DeMille movie from the 1950s, they'll have kind of an intermission in the middle of it. But for the most part, these were experiences that had to be kind of enjoyed in one sitting mm -hmm. whereas now you can have you know an extended cut of one of the lord of the rings films which lasts you know four and a half hours That's or something because people can sit down and you can watch it in sections if you if, if you kind of want to do that um yeah. but also i think that the kind of the the economics of multiplexes has sort of changed the way that you know um, i suppose kind of the, the the length of films because previously there was far more of a sort of financial motive in sort of having something that would last 90 minutes and mm -hmm. then you'd be able to kind of get the next audience in whereas if you've got sort of 20 screens playing the latest movie or That's you know that, that then it kind of changes that sort of imperative um but in terms of shorten shortening attention spans um i think in some ways i kind of it, it's always difficult isn't it with these subjects because you kind of think that every generation always looks at the next generation yeah. and sort of says you know oh things were different back in our day we could pay attention for much longer look at these young people with their their snapchats and everything and yeah. uh, so I, I think part of it is probably that same kind of um impetus that it's just kind of older people often looking at new technologies and seeing them as unnecessarily reductive um i think in some ways there are certainly kind of dangers to so you know something like the 140 character limit on twitter i know that they've mm -hmm. now lifted that mm -hmm. but for a while on the one hand it was this amazing art form to be able to kind of compress a complex idea into 140 characters at the same time there are often dangers in taking complex ideas and trying to distill them into that sort of same yeah. um thing so i think that there's a push now because so people have access to so much um content there are so many ways that you can spend your time um there's kind of a push to, to, to maybe shorten the length of things so that people can fit these things into busier and busier lives. But I don't know whether, and in some ways, I suppose the internet has possibly changed the way that we, we think about certain topics. I know that there was that book, um, The Shallows, which I think came out about 15 mm -hmm. years ago, talking about the way that the hyperlinked nature of the, of the web has kind of changed our concentration spans. But um, I, I can see kind of pros and cons in a lot of these cases. Mm -hmm. Just to pick up, can I just pick up before yeah, I course. forgot, uh, since we started talking about films 
And um, you have done a lot of work with documentaries and yeah. I'm guessing and interviewing people and yes. stuff like that. Um, are there any AI documentaries that you really enjoy, really enjoyed recently? AI documentaries? Or... Um, I saw recently the um is it lo and behold the Werner Herzog uh-huh. documentary yeah. which i think i i don't think it's one of his best uh, documentaries but i think that it's quite as a piece of cinema i think it's quite interesting i like the way that he makes documentary i thought that was quite interesting i'm a big fan of have you ever seen the adam curtis documentary machines of loving grace Mm-mm. i think that's a really really interesting documentary that's oh. all about um sort of the, the 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 birth of the personal computer um in the kind of the hippie counterculture of the 1960s um but he kind of traces a lot of it it's sort of a um they often call them uh, sort of essay edges which i think is a an Orson Welles uh, phrase which is kind of less mm-hmm. a documentary in some ways and more kind of an illustrated essay but he he he's a tremendous um filmmaker and i would say that that's probably still my my favorite yeah. um i think it's a three-part documentary yeah but that's well worth um well worth kind of tracking down but uh, no there are some some tremendous uh tech uh documentaries yeah. out there i'm just struggling to th- those for me would be one of them just because i saw it very recently and the other one because it always sort of has stayed with me as an interesting exploration of a lot of these um ideas mm-hmm. i mean there, there there has been quite a few really good ones i thought coming out as in again piece of cinema like the alphago one yeah that's really amazing the way, like the amount of uh, footage they used, sure, and it's like absolutely. really intimate footage of this, you know, Korean champion. The way he's struggling yes. with the machine, and then the interviews and stuff like that. Yes. Not as in, you know, obviously with the documentaries, you have to look at who's lobbying it, and then yeah. how independent is it. So you know, if it's obviously if it's Google related, then there's going to be one, you know, one spin. Sure. And then if it's you know someone independent filming, then there's going to be another spin. Yeah, yeah. But then again, as you said, as pieces of cinema. I think there's quite a few that's come out recently. Well, I think, and, and maybe this will sort of, uh, in in some ways, kind of uh, segue into some of what we're going to talk about with uh, uh, technology. But I think with documentary, there's always this danger. People always assume documentaries can be or should be objective. Yeah. And I don't think that that is, in fact, the case at all. I think it's impossible to make an objective documentary. I think whether or not you're sort of purposefully misleading or, or you're purposefully kind of constructing a certain narrative or just your decisions based on sort of how you're framing a particular yeah. shot i think all of this kind of bears in bears on our sort of reading of a particular uh film so i've always sort of been interested in this idea of you know whether or not a documentary is in any way i mean the first documentary um i think was it was it nanak it wasn't nanak of the north it was uh moana i think but it was by um uh, Flaherty, who who was a filmmaker who also made this film called Nanak of the North, which is one of the first documentaries ever to be called a documentary back mm-hmm. in, I think, the, the 1920s or 30s. Mm-hmm. And he basically sort of went and made a film about the Inuit and he kind of chose the characters that he wanted and he made them pretend to be a family. And like none of this and, and lots of the things, you know, he would go out oh. and sort of film them hunting, but he wasn't actually filming how they really hunted. He was filming kind of, you know, the, 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 he sort of went out and said, you know, here are some tools, please do this. And, you know, he, he sort of made them act. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, right from the start documentary has always had this kind of blurring of kind of fiction and, and, and reality. So I think that, yeah, that I don't, 
I'm not convinced there's a kind of an objective yeah. uh, documentary. I think it's just important to be kind of aware of what story it is that the filmmaker's trying to tell, and then from that to kind of derive your kind of reading of it. Even things like just sort of juxtapositions with edit with editing. I mean, Eisenstein did this famous experiment where he had um, he would sort of juxtapose two different shots and ask people to kind of read. So I think one of the shots was a fairly static looking face just kind of not showing any particular expression and then he would sort of cut to another shot so in one shot it might be you know a children's birthday party in the next shot it might be people you know sort of starving or a boat sinking or something like that and basically and then he always cut back to the same shot and he asked people to kind of read into these faces and you know what what's this person thinking and people would you know sort of look at the shot of a, a sort of standard face and then a, chil a children's party and say oh well the face was obviously happy so it's not it's yeah. not even just the way you sort of frame the shots it's the way that you assemble the entire thing you can you you can do uh, true, yeah. some, so, so no it's it, it's, I mean, it's complicated it, it's but it, it's fascinating and i mean even now you see this with um with google don't you i mean the the traditional idea of journalistic um objectivity is that you include every different um sort of facet of the story so if i'm interviewing you if i'm writing a story about i don't know you know sort of the the, the eu referendum or something yeah. then you kind of interview someone who's pro and someone who's against but now kind of with, with, with uh, sort of facebook and a lot of these companies now or google where there's an argument that they're uh, sort of actually kind of platforms and they have some kind of responsibility for the information that they're presenting you suddenly get all of these kind of legal questions of you know sort of can you be objective and yet also responsible for the information that you're presenting? Because that means then that if you present a particular view on your platform, you're kind of responsible for it. So yeah. even this idea of kind of news objectivity has, I think, changed enormously in the last 30 years. That's true. Although I feel like the, the basic principles are still there. You know, when there were three channels, <clears throat> each tried to deliver information objectively yes. in a way... Now there is, you know, three million channels sure. and then some of them are objective, some of them are not. Some yeah. of them are pushing an agenda, some of them are not. Right, sure, and absolutely. now also with Facebook, you know, arguably you only see what you actually want to see in terms right, of absolutely. the algorithm. Yeah, yeah, the filter bubble. But yeah, that. yeah, I guess I guess we can jump into that later. Yeah, um, yeah. so you've written four books, right? Yeah, so, sort of, I, I often say kind of three and a half three and a yeah. half books the first one's a, a sort of a history of documentary but it's really just a guide yeah. to kind of 40 i think about 40 documentaries I, yeah. I i enjoy and then the others are book books kind of more more, more sort yeah. of substantial kind of uh, history type yeah. pieces so i've read the latest two years of prep for this yes. so the formula and thinking machines yes. i was wondering what so the formula is very much about algorithms and how much they actually yeah. do in yes. our day-to-day -day lives and how much they determine right yes. then thinking machines is a super amazing crisp discussion of how ai developed and mm -hmm. what it holds for us so i was just wondering if you could take the listeners through the difference or you know i i, I get it's it's kind of contextual like that because they're super connected yeah but between algorithm right yeah. and artificial intelligence as two topics yeah if you could sort of take us through how you're thinking about those two and try to reconcile the two yeah absolutely i think um with regards to these two books i think i had a slightly um quirky definition of algorithm for 
um, the formula. I mean, the, 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 the formula was a book about uh, algorithms and the way that they sort of impact our, our lives. And an algorithm at its most basic is sort of the step-by-step -step series of instructions by which a computer achieves a particular task. Yes. So it doesn't have to be artificial intelligence, although a lot of the algorithms I talk about in the book relate to things like machine learning and neural networks, which are a big part of uh, modern artificial intelligence. But with the formula, I was really interested in kind of the algorithmization of life, the way that algorithms are often used to, in the same way that we earlier on talked about how typewriters kind of impact on our thought structures around putting around sort of conveying information. What do algorithms do to that sort of same, to, to, to sort of various spheres of humanity? Yeah. So for example, I look at uh, sort of the algorithmization of creativity, or what do algorithms do to human relationships, or what do algorithms do uh, to our, our identities as individuals? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in some ways it was sort of a history of the algorithm, but really I was more interested in, I suppose, in this kind of broader, um, idea of algorithm as a sort of a technical processes which sort of turns complex issues into sort of step-by-step -step series of computational instructions mm -hmm. if that doesn't sound too sort of rambling and kind of pretentious no, no, um sure. and then thinking machines i would say is more of a sort of straightforward um kind of survey of the history of artificial intelligence and a kind of a look at because artificial intelligence and i suppose in some ways your question was um, kind of what's the difference between uh, way, yes. the two. Um, I sort of made up my own definition of the algorithm in the sense that I, I, I just kind of talked about in terms of what it sort of represented uh, to me. With artificial intelligence, I was interested because, I mean, just by calling it artificial intelligence, you immediately kind of mark this out as not just a, a, a technological um, field, but also a deeply kind of philosophical field. So I was interested in kind of tracing the history of this idea of what does it mean to you know, what is intelligence? What does it mean to make a machine think? And then because there had, I don't, I don't think there has ever been kind of broad agreement over what the goals of artificial intelligence are. But I think over time, as this goes into more and more domains, more and more people kind of, you know, jump on it, then um, the, the, the complexity of sort of distilling this idea of what is artificial intelligence becomes more and more complicated. One of the, I, I always liked to start my interviews for the book by asking people what do they think of as artificial intelligence? And firstly, it's amazing how many people who have been working in this field for, you know, often 40 years um, can't ki kind of, you know, they, they haven't yeah. thought about kind of yeah. what does this mean? Or they, they've thought a lot about it, but sort of explaining kind of what this relates to isn't always um, a straightforward thing. One of the people I interviewed uh, came up with a definition which I really like, which was that uh, artificial intelligence is cool stuff that computers can't yet do. Yeah. And so I think in that way it's kind of interesting because it's always this sort of technological dream which is sort of shimmering on the horizon and the closer yeah. we get to it the further it sort of recedes from uh, from view. So I think that that's kind of a fascinating part of it. That is very true. Yeah. Whenever there is some, you know, some breakthrough then yes. people talk about, okay, this is either calling it narrow or yeah. this is kind of artificial intelligence but if we do that, I mean, that would be artificial yeah, yeah. intelligence. And then we do that and then it's like, okay, this is fine, but sure. if we actually go further, yeah. that would be AI. Do you think now there is a bit of a... The, the term artificial intelligence 
AI both commercially and in, in popular culture is quite packed with uh, inconsistencies in a way. So like one of them is definitional issues, yeah. right? And another one is um, a lot of companies are using AI as this, you know, super hot sure. phrase in yeah. order to further their business. Yeah. And they're not really making, is it just machine learning? Yeah. Is it deep learning? Is it, what do you think from an, from an ethical standpoint for a business to be using artificial intelligence as a term, do you think it would help for, for them to have a set criteria as to what it is? Well, I think a lot of the time now when people talk about um, artificial intelligence, they're predominantly talking about machine learning. And I don't think, I, I, so for example, if you're working for a bank and they talk about, you know, and they call you in for a meeting and they, they say, we're investing heavily in, in AI, you kind of know that it's going to be sort of probably within a sort of set sphere of, of, of deep learning. Mm -hmm. They're probably not working towards the goal of artificial general intelligence, which is, you know, some people would argue that AGI, the kind of the idea of actually replicating intelligence in a machine is the only true artificial intelligence. But I think for the majority of people, they wouldn't think of it as as that. So I think part of it, yeah, it is a kind of a, a, a definitional um, problem. But I, I, I think there's probably within industry a fairly kind of broad agreement over what what this is. I think, ironically, few of the people who are kind of using, I mean, if you look, for example, at, you know, the tech companies which are interested in this, Google, they may be interested in sort of artificial general intelligence, but the majority of the AI work that they do is finding new ways to sort of sell sell adverts to people. Yeah. So yeah. I always think that's kind of ironic that in some ways they're this company that have, you know, the greatest human minds of their generation sort of working for them and they're kind of putting them to work, finding better ways to kind of target ads at people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even within a company like that, you sort of have a, a sort of schism in terms of what the goal of AI actually, actually is. It actually mm -hmm. is. Do you feel that um, just building up on that do you feel like in terms of ethics yes i think there is i mean an ungodly amount of conversation about artificial intelligence and ethics yeah like to me it's quite amazing and it feels like we are kind of ahead of the topic in a way i mean there were some events that made people think about you know that time when um was it microsoft releasing a chatbot in on twitter sure, yes and then it started saying you know profanity and all kinds Yo. of things and so there were events that triggered that conversation yeah. more, but I feel like this time with this technology, we're trying to stay ahead and talk, think about ethics before it kind of becomes too late. Do you think there's some truth to that or are we not thinking about um, ethics enough? I suppose it depends on what, again, it's sort of a, a, a definitional problem, I think. If you're talking about, are we considering that we need to embed emotions like empathy in artificial intelligence are we thinking that we need some sort of moral code by which mm -hmm. ais are created i don't think we're doing that i mean there are sort of foundations like i think the good ai foundation is one group which is very interested in this area um there are some researchers who have talked a lot about this but i don't think that that's currently part of certainly not the legal framework around kind of developing artificial intelligence mm -hmm. um I think that, I mean, and then there are sort of offshoot issues. I think that a big one that often when I'll do an interview about AI, people immediately jump to the kind of the Skynet hypothesis as being the kind of the big yeah. threat from AI. The idea that, you know, 
it's going to be sort of you know robots with Austrian accents and leather jackets marching yeah. down the street, and that's the big threat from from them. I think that the impact, for example, on employment is going to be enormous, and I don't think that that's something that has been properly addressed um, yeah. yet. And I think we're already at a stage where that is becoming an issue for a lot of people. You know, that for, for for machines to replace people in employment doesn't take us reaching any kind of tipping point in terms of machine intelligence. Yes. Often it's just a financial decision. So I, I, I think there's definitely thoughts, uh, there's definitely some, some interesting kind of thinking around the ethics in AI. And it helps the fact that a lot of these issues are questions which have been explored by philosophers for hundreds of years. So there's a yeah. long kind of ethical framework in which a lot of them um, sit. But in terms of whether or not um, I would agree that we're kind of well ahead of um, where we need to be, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure. I think that there's still a lot of work to do in that area. Um, because mm -hmm. we, we're, we're also only just reaching, there's that line from Jurassic Park, isn't there, about, you know, you spent so long thinking about whether you could do something that you didn't stop and think whether you should do something. Yes. For a lot of AI's history, the big kind of bottleneck or the big limitation has been the fact that these things just couldn't, they didn't work outside of lab conditions. And now we're at the point at which a lot of these technologies work and they can work very, very effectively. And I think in some cases there's this sort of temptation maybe you know, the capitalist temptation or whatever it is to kind of rush out technologies and kind of be first to market with something without thinking about maybe the implications mm -hmm. that it's going to have. And then you can get into whole arguments about, you know, does a company that's going to put people out of work have any moral responsibility not to do that? And, you know, there are some really kind of thorny, thorny questions yeah. in there. I mean, you mentioned AI and jobs, and even though you think it's not as addressed as it yeah. should be compared to a singularity kind of scenario sure. that we're quite far from yeah. yet, it seems. Then talking about AI and jobs, uh, sort of short to medium term, yeah. there is a lot of research about which jobs are going to be redundant, yeah. which jobs are going to be displaced. If we could take a conversation a bit further, and if I could ask you whose responsibility is it to prepare the workforce yeah. to the world that's coming is it the university schools yeah is it the people themselves yeah or is it the companies they're going to be working at to put those procedures in place who is in the best place to actually figure this out yeah it's interesting um i mean there, there's this kind of great story about um i'm gonna sort of mess up the details of this but it was sort of a few hundred years ago and there was an inventor who uh came up with some i think it was a, an automatic uh, sort of so, so, some kind of automated loom some kind of automatic automated weaving machine and he went to visit uh, mm -hmm. the, the the queen of uh, england and tried to secure a patent for it yeah. and she turned him down on the on the basis that this invention he had come up with was going to put a lot of her sort of subjects, I suppose, out of out of work. And you would never get that situation now, you know, a sort of patent's not going to be denied because it's going to have a large sort of harmful impact on the workforce. So I think a lot of it, it you're, you're right, it's a complex issue too. I mean, I think that a certain amount of responsibility needs to be with the individual in terms of being aware of these technologies and being able to kind of there, there are exciting opportunities. I mean, this is what we'll see with AI. It's, it's not going to be something that's going to be bad for everyone. It's probably going to sort of speed up a process which is already happening, which yeah. is the kind of the hollowing out of the middle class and the sort of entrenchment of a two-tier society. Yeah. So on the one hand, you're going to get people that are going to be put out of work by machines. On the other hand, there are going to be enormous opportunities for people that can be in that, I think, Mackenzie Work, who's an interesting... Um, 
critical theorist sort of talks about the kind of the vectoral class, the people who control the algorithms. And clearly there are, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs of this wor world yeah. and anyone who's able to kind of harness these technologies. There are some amazing opportunities. So part of it needs to be on the individual. Um, I think that possibly in terms of the whole sort of regulatory debate I think is kind of interesting because I don't think that you're, you're never going to be able to sort of stymie innovation you're never going to be able to stop this sort yeah. of process from um, happening and trying to kind of artificially do that I know that for example Bill Gates has talked about a robot tax where you would tax companies for replacing humans quite a um, place, yeah. and then there's you know the idea of kind of a universal basic income which I think is another big solution which is often put forward as a kind of a, you know that would obviously be a sort of a governmentally induced uh -huh. uh, a, a scheme I don't know where I, I, I have my reservations about that I do think that there are one interesting idea I have heard is the idea that maybe there needs to be some kind of redressing of the balance um, in terms of ownership of data so at the moment you'll give Google your data when you search or when you you know do anything that's kind of under a Google brand and in, in exchange you get free search, you get free email, you get all of yeah. these sort of free services but that trade-off isn't quite fair necessarily. Yeah. Google gets a lot more out of you than you get out of Google possibly. Um, the, the idea that maybe you should have some kind of monetary stake in your own data ownership, I think, is interesting. So the idea that, you know, if a company uses data that you've provided, either for something like, um, you know, it could be anything, even down to kind of, you know, if you've used a dating website and then that information is used then to successfully match other people up in a way that makes that company money, should yeah. you get a small amount of, of, of money for that? If you're a translator and one of your translations is used to help, um, you know, translate a document that you've had nothing to do with, maybe you should have some monetary, um, you know, remuneration for that. And I think that's an interesting idea because that would also encourage people to use these services. Um, you know, if you were able to make a, a living wage by using Google, for example, you're going to use Google a whole lot. Yeah. Um, but I think that, so, so I think that maybe that that's an interesting kind of line of um, thought that I've kind of heard explored. Okay, then just touching on that, I'm aware of the time constraints. I just have uh, one or two questions yeah, left. First one is follow up on what you just said about universal basic income. Yes. To me, I have two ideas in mind. One of them is the partial ownership of data yeah. is an amazing idea. And universal basic income is a great idea that will also help with the potential of inequality that AI might create of sort of widening that gap. One sure. way to fill it is to use that abundance abundance of wealth yep. created by technology and then sort of partition it among the population. Sure. But in a, some would say in a very positive scenario when we do have this abundance of wealth yep. and you can see that kind of coming into place uh, in Scandinavian countries yep. where they have very, very generous social benefits. Sure. When people basically don't have to work and can yep. live their lives quite comfortably yes. to an extent. Do you think there's going to be problems with... Um, people finding their identity and finding their place in a society when they're not contributing yeah. to it directly. No, I think this is always interesting. I think that um, there's this idea, and, and a lot of the time when I'm on a panel or, or something discussing this idea, people talk about, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of work in the same way that people will say, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of cancer? And yeah. you kind of think, well, I don't think that these two things are really 
you know, I, I kind of clearly if it's does, if it's work that's going to be dangerous to people, then you can absolutely make a moral yeah. sort of argument. You know, no one's arguing to bring back child chimney yeah. sweeps that we got. But I do think that, you know, um, the, 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 the positive impact that uh, uh, employment can have on people's lives, I think, is enormous in terms of giving them a kind of a community and giving them. Um, some reason to kind of get out of bed in the morning, having a goal to pursue, I think is is a really valuable thing. I mean, there's always the question, you know, if we got rid of work, what what do we do? What yeah. do we do do then? And I don't know that that's necessarily a clear a clear yeah. answer because a lot of the time people will say, oh well, we could create. So in that case, you're saying, well, we'll get rid of some jobs, but we'll keep the artists. And so that's you know, fair. what what are the things that we and and for me that kind of comes down to the crux of it, which is as a society what jobs do we want to hand over to machines and what jobs do we want to kind of keep back and there are certain things that i would argue that we don't necessarily want to hand over to to machines uh, just one last question i yeah, wanted to ask um is about we started talking about documentaries and i would like to finish also with documentaries yes. and with uh, personalities in ai yeah because i've been i've been thinking about uh you have stephen hawkins uh Stephen Hawking's quote yeah. on the cover of Thinking Machines yeah. and uh, obviously Stephen Hawking, rest in peace, amazing human being. Uh, but I was going to talk about someone else in the AI field who's Elon Musk yeah. and uh, he's quite outspoken about it. Yes. And he recently lobbied a documentary called Do You Trust This Computer okay. to be streamed for free for yes. a few weeks, I think. And now you have to pay on Vimeo and I was late to this, so I had to pay uh, but to watch it. Do you think, just talking about him, someone who has a stake in quite a few companies that are in and around the AI field yes. and uh, is either on the board or as a chairman yeah. or as a consultant to some of those other AI research companies, yeah. do you take what he says with a grain of salt knowing that his companies are publicly traded mm -hmm. so that he is probably pursuing some kind of an agenda as yeah. such an outspoken CEO? with saying those things. So it's very different from Stephen Hawking. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, how should we take the things that they say about AI, knowing that they're directly involved in the public perception of it? Yeah, it's um, it's complicated, isn't it? Because, I mean, they're, they're certainly far from the only large-scale sort of public figures who have spoken out about the risks of yeah. artificial intelligence. Um, in, in, in my own personal uh, view, there are certainly things... Like, for example, um, I know that there have been the, the, the campaign against killer robots, for example. Um, I, I, I know that a number of open letters have been kind of signed by a number of sort of Silicon Valley uh, kind of leaders talking about how a lot of these technologies which are kind of used in war should be more sort of open and more um, easily kind of scrutinized and these sorts of things. And I find I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think you would be very silly to kind of say that someone with the intelligence and the access of Elon Musk is completely off base yeah. um, with a lot of these concerns. I mean, the truth is that all of these technologies, you know, if, if we are, if we do reach a point at which artificial general intelligence is um, achieved, it would change the world either for the better or for the, or, 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 or for the worse. I don't know that I, I'm often very skeptical about sort of timeframes that, Put this in the near future because I don't think that we're even at the point yet where we can define intelligence 
you know, we, we, we don't have a general sort of uh, agreed upon kind of measure of what exactly that is. So when people talk about, oh, well, we're sort of, you know, neural networks are getting bigger and bigger once we build one with the same number of connections as the human brain, then that's that's the equivalent of human intelligence. I don't think that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think that you would be very foolish not to take a lot of these concerns um, seriously. I think that, of course, as you point out, there are vested interests that you can um, point to. A lot of the time, you know, I mean, Elon Musk, one of the kind of great things that he um, does, he seems in some ways sort of a science fiction kind of dreamer. He takes a lot of these technologies which yes. have been part of our sort of science fiction and has kind of actualized them and made them a, a, a reality. So I think that you can maybe argue that some of what he says has more of a kind of a science fiction bent in some kind of cases. That's but true. And I, I think that's also the appeal what resonates with people sure. is those references kind of also what you do in your yeah. right in reference to you know popular culture and as in real life something that is here and now and you yeah. can think about it in that way but um i i, I suppose for me the only ever the, the the biggest concern about these long-term forecasts tends to be that it risks ignoring the short-term yeah. um risks and i think that if we're if if all we worry about is something that's going to happen kind of 50 or 100 years in the future it risks missing the point with a lot of the huge upheaval which is the result of artificial intelligence now and some of the risks that it poses in terms of impact on uh, employment or the fact that a lot of these systems can't easily be uh, scrutinized or the responsibility behind them who's responsible for a particular system that kind of you know maybe doesn't work as as it should do so i think that those are the issues that i'm most kind of concerned about but no i think that I mean, ultimately, there are so many great thinkers working in this sort of field that it would be a mistake to sort of dismiss anyone entirely. It's best to read as many perspectives yeah. on it as, as as possible. Yeah, it's just I asked the question because those are the loudest voices Absolutely. and they keep being reiterated in the media. Sure. And it's like those guys know what they're doing. They yeah. can't just be Mother Teresa's just talk, speak in their mind, having, you know, multi-billion companies on yeah. a public stock. Yeah. Um, just last question, super brief. Yeah. Uh, for a current graduate, yeah. uh, you know, either finishing the studies yeah. at university or school, yeah. uh, doesn't really know what to do. Yeah. For example, be it, I don't know, going in media, going in law, anything really. Yeah. Can they be safe going into any industry without thinking about how technology is changing it and with just ignoring the impact of technology and employment. Um, is I... that career path still alive of just going somewhere and then working for 30 years? And not even that, just not thinking about... Because yeah. I feel like the evolution is now so fast that sure. it, it can all your skills can become redundant, yeah. I guess, very quickly. Yeah. What should the graduates be? If, if you had to give a piece of or two pieces of advice, what should they be thinking about? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that for, for a variety of reasons, not all of which are technological, I don't think that we've lived in a world for the last few decades where it's possible to join a career at 18 and to, to, to realistically think, well, things are going to be the same yeah. by the time I retire at 65 or, or something. I think that we're in, at an incredibly exciting kind of juncture in terms of technology. There are enormous risks And I think if you're on the wrong side of those, it's particularly dangerous. But I think that if you're graduating now, find find an interesting intersection. If you're interested in law, then law is a a massively, as I'm sure you're very familiar, it's a hugely oversubscribed um, field. Mm -hmm. But um, 
uh, computer science and law, there's still a, a huge kind of dearth of um, sort of uh, sort of work in a lot of these kind of areas. So I think that if you can go into something like that, if you can find an intersection that kind of interests you, and you can find some way of combining that uh, a particular field with a computer science, then you're set for a really really exciting few years. Mm -hmm because regardless of what field within law you're sort of interested in, there's going to be some exciting kind of opportunity to, you know, I, I suppose kind of see how, well, law is a fascinating one because you'll pretty much be called in regardless of which area of society this is kind of impacting on yeah. because there are going to be so many unprecedented kind of cases that we're going to hear argued in the next um, few years. But yeah, I, I, I think keep aware of what's happening. Um, realize that things can change incredibly quickly. What wasn't possible two years ago may now be possible. Back in 2004, there was a book um, uh, uh, published by an, an MIT and a Harvard professor, um, which I'm, fail, I'm, I'm, I'm failing to remember the name of it, but it had a chapter called Why Humans Still Matter. And it's not Race Against the Machine. It's from 2004. Um, I can I I I'll, I'll find it to you, and you can send, you can put a link in the YouTube yeah. comments or something. But um, had a chapter called "Why People Still Matter," and they were talking about the jobs that humans, that machines would never be able to to carry out, and one of them was driving a car. They said that's the the, the huge amount of information that that would take um, is just never going to be replica uh, sort of replicable uh, by a, a, a machine. And of course, now we realise how wrong that is. So realise that things change very quickly. Try and stay on top of these um, trends and try and find some way of kind of incorporating these technologies. Don't be scared of them. Realise that they offer amazing opportunities, and that if you're on the right side of a lot of these things then you're going to be in for an incredibly interesting uh, career. Great. Fantastic. Right. Well, thank you so thank much. You much. Really Luke. appreciate your time. Super insightful conversation. Thanks for hosting me. And yeah, wish you all the best. Fantastic. Good luck for the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank, thank you very much. much. Cheers. As always, for more interviews, book reviews, and to hear my humble opinions on the trend in artificial intelligence topics, go to maxtalksai.com or maxtalksai on Instagram. Again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, please enjoy your day, enjoy your week, and see you next Tuesday. Ciao.